Hawk Honk, this year's Channing Tatum consensual butt sex boy, in honor of Sigourney Weaver and Exodus, what famous star had the most inexplicable throwaway role? Uh, in 2014, uh, did you know Frank Langella was the voice of a rock giant in Noah? Now you know. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Uh, Gary Oldman was a villain in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, although all I remember he does is touching an iPad. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, and I'm also going with a villain, Will Smith in Winter's Tale as Satan. Growl, growl. And I'm David Ehrlich, and while I'm tempted to go with Brady Corbett in literally every movie, uh, after watching the utter embarrassment that is The Amazing Spider-Man 2, I'm, I have to go with Paul Giamatti as the Rhino! Oh. <laughs> we all picked villains. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 51, for Tuesday, December 9th, 2014. Before we get started, we have two reviews to share with you. It is such an exciting day for me, but especially for David. Would you like to share these reviews with us, David? Uh, I will do my best. The first one, uh, I must be a real glutton for punishment. This is a long one. So if you're listening to this and you would rather not hear me uh, insult myself via somebody else uh, excruciatingly, <laughs> please skip forward about 45 Why seconds. Why would anyone skip? Right now. I don't know, but I thought I would throw that out there uh, and let people get to the show if they so chose. Sean2006 says, one major weak, broken, rusted, cynical link. This podcast is generally pretty great. Katie is insightful. Dave knows how to speak about genre films in a way that doesn't treat them as lesser beings because he thoroughly enjoys them. Patches can be a little hard on some great films sometimes, but he's rarely flat out wrong, and his dry wit more than makes up for it. If it was just these three, this would be a five-star review. Then, there, David Ehrlich. That's their mistake. <laughs> oh, mind. come. Who is so detestable, he takes away two stars from this review. David is insufferable. It has gotten to the point where I just skip through when he's talking on the review. I hope you're listening right to this Right now, he's yeah, he uh, already skipped ahead. That 30-second <laughs> advance button on the uh, Because his opinions are more confidently misspelled wrong than a Tea Party member spouting about creationism being taught in schools. Wow. He never acknowledges the quality in something he doesn't like. Merely discounts it as garbage or awful. These tend to be aspects of films that are universally adored by critics, because that's really the metric that we should set. Hey, I wish hey, I could hey. put this podcast through a filter set to remove David's voice so I don't have to sit through his biased ranting of quality film and just hear misspell the other three voices I <laughs> hey, love hey, hearing hey. so no, much. No criticizing or misspellings. You're not reviewing listening. this. I haven't decided yet. It's not that I disagree with his opinions. I disagree with the other three every now and then as well. Rather, that he so pompously disregards anything he doesn't love as crap. It just gets grating to hear over and over again. If either Katie, Dave, or Patches are reading this, and they don't have to, <laughs> drop David like the plague, replace him with the awesome Johanna Robinson, and you will all be better for oh, it. Oh, wait. Why do we Thank read you. these out loud? It's so we're oh, punishing. That, that, that was great. Actually, if you if you listen to it, so three of us is five stars, but David is worth two stars alone. So he's I'm actually the most, yeah, most, the most valuable. I'm offended. Most valuable. I know. Mathematically. Uh, and on a lighter note, from Houster15, one of my favorites, Five stars. I've gone through many film discussion podcasts and more often than not find myself dissatisfied with what I hear. Then I found Operation Kino. R.I.P. The hosts were smart, <laughs> dynamic, and eloquent and represented some part of the movie viewer spectrum that I really appreciated. Now, every week, I look forward to fighting in the war room and refuse to listen to the review section until I see the movie myself to feel like I am part of the family. The fact that you guys are not in the top 100 in the TV and film podcast ranking is a 
click more. Outrage. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. We've been there, and we will be there again. We have been thank there, you. but With we do reviews. need reviews and ratings. Yeah, it's true. With your reviews, they will help us get there. So thank you very much to both of you. Yes. Uh, and uh, send in a review. We'll read it on the Welcome show. Welcome to the family. So, top 10 season, we're in full swing. We've already seen David's amazing video. Look, I promoted it for you, David. You didn't even have to pimp it right now. I'll, I'll throw it out there for you. Wow. Um, you should all watch it if you have it. It's amazing. But, yeah, top 10 season is in full swing. We'll be doing our episode sometime in the near future. Uh, but I, I kept thinking, especially after I saw a few other top 10 lists come out, uh, including, say, Jay Hobermans, who uh, he decided to put The Americans, FX's The Americans, on his top 10 films of the year. He also put a Marx Brothers TV collection on uh, his top 10. This is very common for him. Uh, he, he, this is not a new thing. Am I wrong, David, that Hoberman yeah, does that a lot? He's been doing this for a while. He get, he's, he, there are no rules. Uh, first rule of Jay Hoberman, top 10 list making. There are no <laughs> rules. Uh, and I just find this very fascinating because I found myself having an impulse this year where I'm just like, I wanted to put Olive Kitteridge after our little discussion on that. I'm like, Olive Kitteridge is a great film, but I guess it's not. It's not a film. It's, it's three parts and, uh, or no, what is it? Six parts? Four parts. Four parts. Uh, yeah, two nights. Four parts. And uh, yeah, I can't even. I can't even think of it in that way because for me, it just stood out as a, kind of a great film. Um, someone uh, in a tweet to us the other day likened it to Boyhood or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, they, they, yeah. Olive Kitteridge is telling a very long story, and lots of generations, and it's it feels like one complete piece. And you wish you could put it on your top ten, but maybe it doesn't fit there. It's if you're a traditionalist, and I and. It, for making a top 10, I feel like I want to be. I just want to put films on there. So I won't have the Nick on my top 10, even though people are... I, I'm compiling my favorite scores right now, my top 10 favorite scores of the year. And people are like, the Nick, the Nick. And I'm like, no, the Nick does not belong on my top 10 scores. It is not a film. It is television. Uh, Cliff just, Martinez wrote the same score like he does for every yes. movie uh, <laughs> for the for the Nicholas Winding Refn documentary. So they're going to have Hey, you know what? It's yeah, yeah, they're pretty much all the same. Um... <laughs> But so I wanted to throw it to you guys. What what kind of craziness, any mediums, blurring the line here, uh, comes to mind if you were going to compile your top 10 list, something that might not fit it, because frankly, it's not a film, and yet you somehow consider it to be cinematic, that it may belong on your list if you were less traditional. Uh, who should I start with? David, you go first. What, anything come to mind here? Well, um, I... <laughs> This is this is uh, almost self-parody, but I think that the NHL playoffs from last May were dramatically <laughs> satisfying, even though the Rangers ultimately lost. But the uh, the third round in the playoffs, when Martin, the Rangers were down three to one in a best of seven series yeah, against the, the best team in their conference, and Martin San Louis, who's this older, thirty-eight-year-old scrappy, like five foot five, amazing player who has legs the size of tree trunks. Mother died, and uh, it was this very emotional thing. And the Rangers woke up and won the next three games. And Martin San Luis scored uh, the first goal in the next game, and it was uh, it was it was a really incredible moment that was uh, dramatically on par with anything I've seen in the movie theater this year. Um, so I think I think certain sports fans, if they could bring sports into the equation, would would be quick to do so. Um, 
it seems a lot more pertinent than DVD sets that happen to be released in a given year. <laughs> now that we're talking about uh, suck it, Oberman. <laughs> I, I would I would also throw to speak of sports, which I rarely do. Uh, all the thirty for thirty documentaries that came out this year, I would group them all as one and put them on the top ten list. They're consistently good. They have been for I think they started back in two thousand nine. These seasons of documentaries, but even something like the Nancy Kerrigan. Uh, oh my God! Doc. Yes, that's so Nanette good. Nanette Bernstein's Price of Gold earlier this year, I, I thought was fascinating and was reliving so a moment great. that I, I I did live and with so much more insight. I just love all those documentaries, and I'm not the biggest sports fan. So, uh, Katie, what's on what's on your list? I mean, mine was gonna I was gonna start with the Nick, which I really loved from start to finish, despite kind of finding the screenplay like you know going itself in circles a little bit steven soderbergh's direction was so consistently enjoyable and the acting is so good and i like cliff martinez's score that might have been the same score that we've heard a couple times um he does what he does well i mean i think even more so than true detective it really felt like bringing this cinematic approach to long-form storytelling especially i think because uh the nick got a little soapy at times so you kind of felt the tv-ness of it maybe even more so than true detective um yeah, I really love. Yeah, it's the basically Nick. Would... House, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's slightly more complicated than that. Like on some level, it is, <laughs> and it kind of becomes more about his drug addiction uh, later so in is the House. season. Yeah, and it was it got a little bit boring when that happened, but then it kind of ended on this really strong note and had so so many great performances. Um, do I get one more? Sure. Yeah. Okay, my my other one was going to be Beyonce's Grammys performance. I think her <laughs> standing in front of that giant sign that said feminism was one of the best things that I've seen all year. And the entire thing was so exquisitely choreographed. And I don't know, I, my argument of that being cinema is not going to be that great because it's not about the camera. It's about what is happening on stage. But in terms of like but it giant is about pop the culture camera. moment that was filmed. That um, frame is essential. It's yeah, not just true. her da- like performing that song. It's about no, you're right. the mise camera en moves. scène. No, it, yeah, no, exactly. So it's about like the energy of live performance matters a lot and kind of the semantics of so much of what was going on, including like squashing divorce rumors by bringing her family up on stage but in terms of like giant pop culture moments that like made me feel something on the level of what a movie does that was huge i love that that's awesome dave uh oh man everybody sort of picked things that are in the wheelhouse things i was gonna pick so i guess i was gonna if i was gonna go like big and esoteric like david i would say um the ability of sort of fringe media to pick up on the live streaming of protests this year has been really interesting mm. i've spent a lot of my time on uh Ustream or vice news or one of the many other channels allowed you to stream from a mobile device sort of doing uh you know when i feel helpless and mm. uh, something like that's happening i feel it's like your civic duty to either watch or reverberate so on twitter and like Ustream and whatnot i don't know if there's uh a responsible way for me to say that's a narrative, but I'm surely making I, it into one for myself. I saw someone point out the the news frame where Obama is talking about peaceful protesting and trying to be peaceful, and then behind him, uh, Ferguson is erupting into not violent yeah. protests, but like setting things on fire. And like that frame or that sequence was worthy of a top 10 list this year, yeah. which I find funny. I'm, all, I'm also now thinking that I could probably name like a top 10 storifies this year more than any other year which is really interesting just like twitter conversations as some sort of dramatic dialogue Uh, i'd really have to rack my brain for what those would be but definitely and dave for you i mean protest the entire point of protest is to be a narrative like i I don't think 
narrativizing that is at all against the purpose of a protest. Yeah, and there's also like mini narratives inside. Like the other day, I was watching some of the Eric Garner protests, and one of the live streamers uh, was getting tweets that the Fox News was using his stream, and he ran across a Fox News reporter. And there's like three minutes of a live stream like confrontation between this Fox News reporter and this live streamer, who are both supposed to be, you know, ostensibly covering the event for the same reasons. And so it's huh. like there's all these like mini theater moments that are just if you happen to be watching at the correct moment as like history is happening, you sort of tune into this narrative on like the Katie side of uh, weird pop culture things that happen that you can't really recommend. Uh, I talked about a little bit on the last episode of the Thought Bubble, which you could find in our feed about a comics moment this year that made me cry, which I would definitely recommend on my top 10 list, but you're going to have to listen to that. Wow. Uh, wow. wow. To hear that. The self-promotion in this, in this segment is getting crazy. I know. My top well, 10 includes Dave's ability to tease out another podcast. I know. It's getting all multi-universe so dramatic. in here. That's right. I'm crossing <laughs> over like the best of us. But the thing I really want to recommend is uh, Over the Garden Wall, which was a uh, Cartoon Network miniseries that aired this November, I think, 3rd through the 7th. It's in oh. 10 parts. They aired them in pairs of two. Uh, and it is uh, by Patrick McHale, who was a creative director on Adventure Time. So he got a little bit of sensibility from that. But it's more of a very subtle or not a, a not so subtle throwback to like the cartoons of the um, early 30s and late 20s that sort of uh, develops a modern link. Uh, thematically later on and it's just this really interesting story that I think is going to be like my Thanksgiving tradition or something like that. That's exactly what my girlfriend says. We're watching it every Thanksgiving, I'm told. Yeah, it's this nice little uh, bubble sort of fantasy story (laughs) that um, is has some terrifying imagery that seems like it shouldn't be for kids but is also sort of a kid-friendly, family-friendly narrative. It's just really, really interesting. And it's one of those things where it's a cartoon miniseries. So already for stuff like the Annie's where we should be recognizing stuff like this, it's getting thrown in with entire animated series like, you know, the final season of Legend of Korra, which I'm dedicated to. So it feels like... Which also wasn't really nominated. It's all about South Park and The Simpsons when it comes to animation. (laughs) Right. And so it's really interesting to see this thing that's sort of about the history of animation and also this really enchanting narrative and that's really well designed, uh, sort of come so late in the game and then just be over. It's like 10 episodes and then we're done. That was the whole thing and over the garden wall. I think you could, I think it actually debuted online before it was aired on TV. It probably just aired on TV to be award nomin- uh, eligible. So I think you could find it on like iTunes and Amazon already. Yeah, I bought it for pretty cheap on iTunes and you also get a bunch of extra bits and interviews and stuff, which were pretty cool. Awesome. And you're going to want the soundtrack really bad. I don't know if that's out there, but I want it now already. There are a lot of good songs. It also has maybe one of the scariest moments of the year up there with Babadook. Dead serious. Mm. Oh it's my God. Like one of the episodes and this scared the crap out of me. It's like Miyazaki meets Babadook. Oh my that's God. a pretty hard sell. Um, I just want to wrap up this segment uh, with one more recommendation that I was thinking about. I don't think we talked about it on the podcast because the, the kind of swell of excitement over this thing reached peak levels in record time for it, even the internet. But I do, I rewatched too many cooks the other day and that <laughs> piece of filmmaking is incredible and hysterical. It and it's so pitch perfect from beginning to end 
something that should have run out of steam three minutes in goes for 11 minutes and yeah it rubbed me the wrong way earlier today on twitter when i saw that somebody was like oh remember when we were all obsessed with too many cooks for 21 hours and i was like okay well that is the cycle that is the speed at which uh things that go viral move these days but it shouldn't that the the speed to which we ramp up to obsession and then burn it out shouldn't diminish the quality of the work which is substantial right i think it's Um, now now is the moment go back and watch yeah. too many cooks and appreciate by like minute 10 when all the people in the video become the the, the name the title cards oh my god i lost yeah. my mind i and smarf is now the name of our itv here at home so uh congratulations <laughs> smarf <laughs> segment uh i have to admit something i i do not want any like materials in my life i don't want gifts anymore i i just don't need more stuff i keep seeing dvd sales and i'm like why would i ever buy this we've talked physical about physical media yeah, physical Ridiculous. media we've had very long conversations on this podcast and the one before it about physical media not needing stuff and yet and yet this season tis the season for gift guides and when i see people publish them with um, a little bit of personality, a little bit of thought, not just for their ad buys or whatever nonsense they have to make them. But when some website or some magazine puts out a really good gift guide, I get excited. Like, I, I stuff is cool again. And I, I guess that is the worst part of humanity. This, this stuff greed. Is yeah, cool. greed. Um, yes. I should not, I should not be susceptible to that, but I am. And um, so I challenge all of you. What, what, I want to hear one thing that you have seen in the past 12 months that you might recommend for our movie-loving audience. Uh, and I will go first, because someone sent me uh, this book, Altman. Is it just called Altman? And it is this visual biography written by Robert Altman's wife, Catherine Reed Altman, and this film critic, uh, I'm going to botch her name, Julia Diagonalo Valian. I feel like you botched it. I botched wow, that. You really did. You know what? Just get, see, check out the book and you'll see her name. She's actually here in New York and I, I'm not very familiar with her. So she, maybe someone out there knows. Um, but they, they wrote this book together and it's not a lot. I mean, there's bits of criticism in there, but really you're buying this book for these amazing essays and interviews. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut wrote about Altman and there's a bunch of Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert and interviews with Lily Tomlin about Nashville and these amazing, they went through the Altman archive that had 11,000 photos or something in it. And they just found these amazing glossy images of all the movies. I mean, if you ever wanted to conquer Robert Altman's entire filmography, grab this book, get all the movies on on DVD. And and for anybody currently in New York, there is a massive Robert Altman retrospective that is just starting at MoMA is continuing through January. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if it playing. has to do with this book or something because this is the perfect companion. Like you want to be watching one movie and then go to the book and then watch a movie and then go to book. I'd highly recommend it. It's a really beautiful and it's hardcover. I mean, it's the real deal. It's great. Okay. All of you. Dave, you start. Oh, I, I guess I have like two. One is if you have any sort of interest in the crazy Marvel stuff that's happening around you, 
And, you know, you might as well capitulate at some point or, you know, have a strong will for 2019. Good luck. Uh, Marvel people are like the Borg. You're just absorbing them. Okay. And some sort of digital device or your computer, I would suggest a subscription to Marvel Unlimited, which they are digitizing their back catalog at a faster rate than they're releasing new comics. And already, like, all the essentials, especially everything that's going to involve, like, a movie or a TV show, is there, and it's free. So it's a monthly subscription. You uh, stream them. You could save up to, I think, 13 issues for on-the-go-ness. And you could just have comics. If you want to read Infinity War, because all of a sudden they announced a movie about that, you could do it instantly. Or if you want to know, like, who Black Panther is, you could go back and read almost all of his back catalog at this point. It's really just in terms of content for investment, uh, the app, the comics app I most use. There you go. Boom. You want me to go? I also have a digital recommendation. Do yeah. it. A year of Amazon Prime. It costs 100 bucks. It makes a good present for someone who you would give 100 bucks worth of a present to. And I'm consistently, consistently surprised by how much movie content is on there in addition to stuff like Transparent and an increasing number of actual original television programming. And then you get your stuff delivered to you in two days. Don't talk to me about Amazon being an evil company. I'm aware. I don't totally know how I feel about it yet, but I use Amazon Prime all the time. And it is a great way to get to see Transparent, which is a great show. Um, and it doesn't involve anything cluttering up your house. Mm. David? Uh, well, I have two very real non-digital things to... Oh! To, uh, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, they take up space in my very small apartment. But one, uh, I'm duty-bound to give a shout-out to to self-promote, although I think it's such a terrific book that I feel like I would do it even if I didn't have an obligation to do so, which is Little White Lies' first book, What I Love About Movies. Uh, I was actually at a Barnes and Noble and saw it and wanted to take a picture, but it was right below Carrie L's book on Princess Bride, and I thought that would embarrass. And you were you embarrassed much. to take a picture. I was embarrassed uh, for the book's position. That guy likes Princess Bride. Get him. <laughs> it's uh, what I love about movies is a really great, beautiful coffee table book. At the end of every issue of Little White Lies, uh, they ask or we ask uh, one of the subjects of the issue, the Cone Brothers or uh, Wes Anderson, whoever the hell it might be. Uh, what they love about movies and the answers can be mundane and they can be fascinating and really uh, open your eyes to just the, the thought process of these people and, and reveal their personalities. And they're a lot of fun. And each of the answers accompanies a beautiful original illustration, the kind that Little White Lies is known for. And uh, it's, a, it's a really nice book and it's not especially expensive. Um, I definitely check it out. The other one, which is definitely expensive relative to, you know, it's not like one of the Toshin books or anything, but it's, uh, I got it for like 65 bucks, I think is usually retails for around 100 is Criterion's book, the Criterion Collection's first book, Criterion Designs, which is gorgeous and It is huge. gorgeous. I've seen and, it. And uh, for anybody who as a fascination with the Criterion Collection and has admired the covers and the art that they do for their releases, this is your holy grail. I mean, they... So is it just book. the art? Is it just big, glossy photos of the covers? No, I mean, it's not just the covers. It's uh, It shows a lot of the design process for mm. all the covers. So it'll show the, the rough copies, and then there's it'll show sketches. It'll show uh, alternate and tossed out art. It'll show, you know, the beautiful, full, final versions. And also... Uh, there are really insightful and sort of illuminating descriptions for each uh, entry that detail what 
about the movies the artist is trying to express, what informed their decision-making process. Uh, if you're at all a Criterion nerd, this is more dispensable than any of the actual releases they made this year, um, which is not to put down the releases. It's just a really beautiful book um, and uh, Criterion Design. So, yeah, two good books. Um, so happy holidays, everybody, and go get some stuff. Consumerism! I'm glad we said it at the same time. I know. <laughs> it mean the same thing. Uh, so we were thinking about reviewing Exodus Gods and Kings this week, but then I said, fuck it, let's just talk about it, because there's no point in reviewing this fi- awful, awful Yay! film. It is really just dreadful, and like not so for much so that it there, would be interesting and colorful and weird, but no, it's just boring and For the listeners awful. out there, Patches and I were going to—well, Patches, I think, knew my opinion of the movie, but I had not an inkling as to what Patches thought about this, and so this is the first time I'm hearing it, and— uh, this is I, I I'm proud of my one star review that's running in Time Out this week, which is the first <laughs> one. It's star damning. Review. You are the <laughs> what a piece of shit. You are smiting this movie, this movie in, in a godly proportion. Um, but but the movie did get me thinking about a, a couple of things, and I think they're tied into one another, and maybe they're discussion worthy, and we're gonna find out as we discuss them. <laughs> um, one is my relationship with movies about the Bible and religious movies. We had Noah earlier this year i i'm taken by biblical films because i like their fantasy i like how they feel also american is the wrong word but we've co-opted the bible and christianity has co-opted and american christianity has has turned these into products of our culture that they have no ties to uh, the, Middle like the Middle East. And so when I see people complaining about the whitewashing, I do understand that, but I also understand this kind of like Americanization of biblical stories and the kind of ridiculous fantasy that you can pull off in them. Um, and so I, in one way, I'm not a religious person, as we've probably discussed on this podcast before. Patches but, versus God. Yeah, exactly. Patches versus God. But I do enjoy... Two men enter. Biblical. Or two things enter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then, two beings. I don't know who walked out. I might be... Satan incognito. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I really do enjoy Bible movies because of the ridiculous fantasy. Now, what's interesting about Exodus is that Ridley Scott tries to make it as realistic as possible. So all the plagues in this Moses story come from real places. So uh, when he's going to turn the Nile red with blood, he doesn't just stick his staff in and it turns red with blood. Uh, it uh, Crocodiles come out. <laughs> and start attacking people and then the crocodiles start chewing themselves up because of Ridley Scott apparently read somewhere in National Geographic that crocodiles will start attacking themselves uh, and then the entire Nile fills with blood because of crocodile attacks um, and then frogs run out of the Nile because they don't want to be in the blood anymore so that's that plague and then they die and then the 
the flies come and then because of maggots and it all it's the circle of plagues and it's a very weird tactic uh they get rid of my favorite scene in the moses story you know when moses comes in and says to pharaoh i don't know what he says but he throws his cane on the ground it turns into a snake what a great trick what an amazing like that's how you pit two people (laughs) against each other you throw down your cane and boom it's a snake that's not in the movie. Yeah, it turns out that when certain images have endured for and, and remained sort of uh, iconographic they, for several millennia, there's typically a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's in the you Bible. you shouldn't just – like the fact that Moses does not part the Red Sea at the end of this movie, perhaps the most iconic image in all of known civilization, <laughs> if not one, certainly one of them. Uh, and Ridley Scott's like, no – uh, that's not good enough for us anymore. We have the power of CG. Let's go with one rolling tidal wave out of uh, Poseidon. And it could not be, you know, I, I'm hardly a uh, a fundamentalist religiously or a, uh, you know, one of those people who needs everything to be exactly as it was in the source material. But it looks like shit and it's handled so bizarrely. Oh, my God. I, I don't know if I've seen a movie that has had a relationship with reality handled so poorly. You know, I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings, which is a fair comparison to Exodus, I think. Uh, and and the way that that takes fantasy material, orcs going into battle against humans, and yet somehow that feels more realistic than what happens in Exodus, which is striving to be true and taking place in a real place in this world theoretically, and and dealing with events that and relationships that are supposed to be very real. I don't know why this movie has such a difficult problem with or well, time with the, it. I, there's, I mean, there's also no is, relationships in this movie and no drama, so that is right. part of the problem. Well, I think no drama in the story of freeing an entire people right. From it's, the it's, it's, it's actually astonishing. It's the most inherently dramatic story in uh, really either of the testaments, as far as I'm concerned. Though, of course, we all know the Old Testament's where all the action is. Um, but this is, which of course is where this uh, this story comes from. But it really feels to me like a 200-plus-minute miniseries that was uh, not unlike Kingdom of Heaven, uh, although that movie had much more promising raw potential, really butchered down to 150 minutes. And none of the relationships track, none of the action within certain scenes track. It really feels like it was just sort of butchered. Um, but what's interesting about Exodus is that this, more than any other story in the Old Testament, is a story that exists in order to be retold. Uh, you don't have to look any further than Passover, which, you know, unlike every other holiday on the Jewish calendar, is something where Jews traditionally don't just have sort of uh, one-on-one conversations with God or, you know, recessive reading where they uh, will all chant together in in response to the rabbi. Uh, This is the story, the family collectively telling the story uh, to each other, the same story every year, twice a year, two nights in a row, and it's pretty astonishing to use patches word when my father who is not a storyteller by any stretch of the imagination can tell a more engaging version of the story with uh, a book to follow along a hagada uh in half the time and you know completely drunk <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> it's the I mean, this it's really uh this is astonishing but patches is getting at deeper things than i am here so i'll let him go well on. no I, i'm curious and dave and katie you haven't seen this movie um, but or I, will I? Yeah, I don't think I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but I am curious. It'll if be you've on seen... something I'm subscribed to at some point <laughs> in the future. Have you have you seen movies like this that seem to be in direct conflict with themselves, where 
It's almost a fantasy story, but it wants Troy. to be realistic. Troy is horrible. I can't believe that people even defend Troy. I, I good... would defend scenes of Troy. Oh yes, okay. There's the the battle scene outside the gates. Very good. I appreciate that. But taking the gods out of Troy and uh, like pretending yeah. that's a way of making it more real, like takes all of the magic out of the great moments of that story. Hmm. So yeah, it's cool that you know this big guy beat defeat defeated this other big guy but it's so much <laughs> more interesting when it's not only that but it's also like the gods playing chess for d- different reasons and then humans being able to see and communicate with that troy just they're like well if everybody's sweaty enough maybe nobody will notice and i really really dislike any like defense of that movie not because it doesn't have good sequences but because like at its core that dual it's an adaptation between it's, Brad Pitt yeah. and Eric Bana yeah no no fantastic. it's good and Brad Pitt and Eric Bana are good and I'm, I'm sure they're good at fighting and it can't be that hard to film them I'm just saying the core of that movie is like shouldn't exist like that it, it's the same sort of thing that you were talking about or it's like why do you need to explain the plagues like isn't that sort of yeah. The whole like it's more magical and more awesome in the literal sense of the word if you don't explain the plagues. Right. I, I was surprised how much I wanted more God in Exodus. Well, gods this and is uh, and, and Christian Bale's presence calls attention to this, but this is uh, I can't believe I'm using this parlance to describe the Bible, but a gritty reimagining of oh boy. <laughs> uh, the story of Exodus in a way not dissimilar from how Christopher Nolan's Batman movies were sort of uh, gritty reboots or gritty take on, on the Batman story. This is a the most interesting thing, really the only interesting thing about the movie is that it begins in media res with Moses as an adult who is reluctant. He is a non-believer. He needs to be convinced of God's plan and existence and uh, God in a, in a disastrous mistake is represented his proxy is represented as a 10-year-old boy. I found that oh. I found that a little interesting. I did enjoy I've that. I've heard mixed choice. things about whether or not the kids a good actor. Scene, who cares? The scenes are painful. <laughs> uh but it's um you know his reluctance is interesting because the relationships don't track. You don't you don't really get any sense as to how he's becoming this leader of uh of the Israelites, but um the other the other problem is it takes about an hour to even get to right. the moments that we but know from he, this exit or Ridley Scott approaches the, uh, God the same way that Christopher Nolan approached superhero tropes and in, in that he wants to eliminate them from the story because he wants to ground it in something more, you know, quote unquote realistic. And uh, and Ridley Scott is a avowed agnostic or atheist and and so I think that just allows the, the inquiry to line up with and that could be really interesting. I mean, like I would much rather see you know sight in a and vacuum. yet that's kind of what Noah that tries to Mel do. Gibson's right? movie. Noah, what? Noah tries to become just the human story. With, I mean, with extravagance, with fantasy, major fantasy elements. But I found Noah to be much more effective when it came to like getting inside the head of a person trying to communicate with God. There are scenes in Exodus where Christian Bale is chatting with the boy playing God. Um, and then you see Aaron Paul. Yes, Aaron Paul is in this movie, uh, looking at him from afar. So miscast. And for some reason, the God is invisible. Well, Christian Bale's talking to no one half the time. But then Aaron Paul is just like, oh, are you talking to God? Cool. <laughs> There's no like, you're a crazy person talking to no one over there. No, is he any, just believes Does any it. actor read more exclusively modern than Aaron Paul? 
Like, is there anyone, is there any famous I mean, actor that you would be less inclined to put in a biblical epic? I haven't mm. seen the movie, but whoever decided that that was Joel Edgerton's final makeup oh, made man. the same oh, mistake. I mean, we don't even need to get on the racist bent. The, 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 the too many other problems. Whitewashed, and John uh, Turturro also plays a pharaoh? Yes, that's, yes. I just started cackling in the they theater. They are in actual shimmering brown face, and, <laughs> uh, and Ridley Scott has said, and now I'm just pretty much quoting from my review because I had to stare at it all day today while we were editing it. But the, uh, you know, he said that, that they cast these actors because, and he said it in more offensive terms than you would ever think to bring to the table. But he, you know, he was essentially saying that he couldn't fund this $140 million uh, epic with racially appropriate actors. And the moral there should be, if you can't fund your $140 million, don't make the fucking movie. So wait, so here's the interesting thing about that choice. I think you could make this movie with white actors and it wouldn't be such a problem if it was crazier, if it was... Animated. Well. No, because let's not get to Pan before we get to Pan because we're going to get all over that with the white tiger lily because the natives of Neverland are mixed race peoples. But it's like... I'm I'm just saying that because this movie strives for realism, because it has an overly complicated relationship with the real that it can't cast in the kind of 1950s way. You know, you, you can't have the, these major biblical blockbusters being American productions and this appropriation of the Bible as real text into some Christian American Christian stories. And I, I think that's interesting. I think you could have that movie where people wouldn't be up in arms about it if it seemed less realistic, if it was more like... Um, a silly super. If it was more of a Marvel movie than a uh, Warner Brothers DC a movie, well, I mean, I think that would definitely sell better. But what it sounds like we got is instead of brown actors in a more tempered movie, we got white actors in a movie that didn't know what to do with all its special effects. Well, the, I mean, did they make yeah. this movie just because Ridley Scott was like, "I want to see the Plague of Locusts," and like made a made a movie so he could just play with the effects? Basically, I mean, and the plagues are, the plagues are, uh, I guess, relative to everything else in the movie, they're sort of interesting, but there's no drama behind them. The, there's no, you really don't feel at all in the scene where the pharaoh is, with his face all covered in boils, is waiting for the darkness to come and claim his firstborn child. Uh, Which it, is it, so fucked up. That's like I remember the Ten Commandments terrifying me as a kid. Stuff like that really scared me. Right, and it's so and, effective. God's wrath is uh, is not scary at all in this movie. What is scary is the Pharaoh, uh, his retaliation, hanging people, three people at a time, whatever it is, in the town square. Um, that is scary. That's just a sort of a base fear. But I think Ridley Scott's detachment from the divine elements uh, really it, it hinders the whole movie. But it, it you know, for a movie. Yeah, what were you I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be divine. I've seen this story played out that's just about brothers and it works. Well, that's the but the brotherly relationship and the red flags shoot up in the first twenty minutes of the movie when they head into battle, uh, and it's already difficult to track the dynamic between Ramses and Moses. Um, you understand that Moses was sort of adopted into this family, and Ramses is still very paranoid and, and power hungry. Um, and it feels like his role might be usurped, but their, their dynamic between them is so fragile uh, that it, it's impossible to feel any sort of connection there. It, 
it, it just doesn't work at all between them. And then very strangely, and I really hesitate to get into the personal elements of this at all, but the movie, which is about these brothers that have such an antagonistic relationship, which is never repaired, um, is dedicated to uh, Tony Scott, right. Ridley Scott's brother, who, uh. who committed suicide a few years ago. And Ridley Scott has made the counselor in the wake of that and there could have been a dedication on that film this film ends with a giant title card that says you know dedicated to tony scott um it is of course a sweet gesture i'm not in their family i do not know i do not think from what i've read that there's any hidden meaning here it sounds as if they were uh good brothers and especially towards the end that ridley scott was really there for him um but what it does is it casts a shadow not on their relationship but it just underlines how poor the structure of the movie is and how <laughs> poorly fleshed out these characters were because you don't feel that at all i i just feel there's there's room for a terrifying old testament god movie this movie i thought this would be it i thought we were gonna finally see old testament god being horrible and i guess noah noah already is did much that. more like that noah tries to kill his family yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's because God by... told him to. Yeah, Noah is not a. I don't think Noah is a very good movie, but it's definitely a lot better than this. And I think, Katie, I think that's exactly why. I think it's because the the relationship, not just between the humans, which fails in in Exodus, but between the lead character and God, is a lot clearer in in Noah. Yeah. Um, and you don't really, as interesting as it is in theory, that Moses is so reluctant. In this movie, it's so weird. This movie, how fast it glides over things. The Ten Commandments, like I thought, the movie was just going to end before that, but it's like, nah, we're just going to show you the Ten Commandments. He's like, going to chisel them. Shot. He's just going to chisel them. He's just chiseling yeah. them. <laughs> it is really. It's a strangely paced movie because there's a whole hour long stretch of Noah or of Moses going yeah. off and like finding a family. I'm like, was this in the Bible or is this Cimmerillion? Uh, <laughs> I don't know where they're getting this from. This is Hobbit Part Three going on in this movie, uh, and it was—it's just like it lumbers forward. It really has no structure whatsoever, and all you want is for God to come out and just either be a total asshole or to feel this revenge against Pharaoh for this movie to have a little bit of energy. I was more scared of God in, in Soul Surfer than I was. Oh, God. Okay. I knew we were going to get back to Soul Surfer. We, always, I know, well, always. I mean, I feel like we uh, have segued into uh, out of Trash Talking Exodus, which apparently is horrible and nobody <laughs> should see, into like really quickly, God on, like the relationship of God to the protagonist of your film. What's your what's your favorite what's your favorite go? What's yours? What's coming to mind? Something clearly yeah, is is. I oh, I don't know. I just I was I would think it was funny if David Ehrlich chose Alanis from Dogma. I don't know what my actual answer would be. David would, would never who, choose a Kevin who's Smith. Who's my film. favorite movie god? I know, but that would be funny if he did. Is what I'm saying. I'm I, I'm just thinking that that's oh. that's what I'm curious about is, is what is it, a, is it the, Dear God? No, there's a good answer to this <laughs> is that a question. Greg Kinnear movie? I just. No, with George Burns. Right oh, well, I mean, like, oh, yeah. What was the one where he something works at like them? a seri- a serious man? I enjoyed in <laughs> oh, terms yeah, of a man's a relationship to his God and religion. Right. But I'm not sure if that's like my all time favorite I like, God uh, as a character in this movie. movie. I, I I mean, I'm not at all in the. I would really have to think this out because there's so many there's so many depictions that I that I love and find moving, even as a non religious person. Um, Bruce first, Almighty, Evan Bruce Almighty, Almighty, and uh, Evan Almighty, two uh, of them right there. Passion, passion of Joan of Arc, right? Uh, no, I'm thinking of uh, 
the and sometimes it's it's really the littlest ones that resonate most strongly with me like the very very end of breaking the waves sorry i mean if you haven't seen that it's whatever statute of limitations expired uh and still i've left it pretty open to uh pretty vague um and something like afterlife which is not really god necessarily but is mm -hmm. definitely takes place uh, as the title implies in the afterlife um yeah those are but i feel like you know brisson you could think of uh, or debt with carl dry it's like like uh, silent light from a few years ago is a film where god is not present but the it, it, there's a godly element imbued into the narrative and yeah, I thought of, like, uh, oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, no, I feel like that's the most uh, successful, but the most difficult to do is, you know, that button moment at the end of your dramatic story where you realize not to throw back to last week's episode and replug ourselves, but your Raiders of the Lost moment, Raiders of the Lost <laughs> Ark moment where you're like, oh, hey, I didn't need to do anything. The God Force was there. Mm. Um, I was thinking of Take Shelter, which is very much yes. much less explicit about God, but kind of about this force of nature bigger than you. And then you get to the end and you realize, you know, it is there in a way. Um, but I was thinking about movies that I would like to see about someone's relationship with God. Someone should make the Abraham and Isaac movie. The guy who just like straight up is ready to kill his son because God told him to. Well, didn't they do mm. that? Wasn't it? Uh, it's part wasn't of it uh, that Bill that a movie? movie. What? Frailty. Frailty. Oh, is that what Frailty is about? Mm, not not it's not a direct adaptation clearly no but i i, I just think uh vaguely i've seen frailty once it was like 10 years ago i remember really liking it and being knocked back a little bit by the the ending um but i can't even tell you who's in it i think maybe matthew mcconaughey yeah that uh, sounds I mean, right the abraham epic is like a somebody mini series that's just waiting to cash in on bible Belt well i believe it's part of john houston's the bible in the beginning <laughs> Have you seen that movie? It is very boring. Oh. It's almost all of the Old Testament packed into one movie. Well, Mark Burnett's The Bible is coming to NBC oh, next spring, so. Wait, I thought that oh, already wait, no. happened. No, wait, no, it's something else. He did The Bible, and next is going to be, it's like, maybe it's just Easter? I don't remember. Bible 2, but it's two eyes oh, with the Roman numerals. Just the Roman numerals, how disrespectful. <laughs> oh, just for the record, that Greg Kinnear movie I was mentioning is it's Dear a Bible God. sequel. Huh? Dear God, huh? the one where they're sending letters to God and he works at the post mm -hmm. office. Classic. Gary Marshall, oh, thank it's, you. Uh it's called A D. <laughs> it's about it's about it's about the Easter story. We are all over the place. Wait, really? Oh, this is Yeah. Awful. Oh yeah, this guy's playing Jesus. Uh I think this wraps up our conversation, <laughs> our aimless <laughs> conversation on the exit. This actually reminds me a lot of the film, uh, wow. having you're absolutely being, no you're being story. Harsh. <laughs> you're being harsh. I think we were, uh, we certainly were a lot more racially sensitive and yes. wasted a lot less money. And well, none of us were wearing eyeliner. I was. Oh, good. I want credit for being the firstborn David on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> uh, but you, that, then you would die, right? You bastardize your name. Yeah, well, that's the Lutheran part of me. Mm -hmm. To put a seven in it, that is very Lutheran of you. I needed some theses. Coke, dope, crack, smack, weed, ease, and CDs. They got it all for cheap. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back on Friday with a review of Wild, which, so far as I know, is not a Bible epic, but maybe we can find out otherwise during our review. In the meantime, tell people who you watch. It's probably like an Eve, not four in the summer. Um, I'm Matt Patches, and I write on the internet all over the place. Try and put everything on mattpatches.com, my website, and uh, I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And remember, if you have thoughts about this episode, if you want to contribute... 
We have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com. All the episodes get posted there. People left comments last week about our quarter quell. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and you can actually do that every week if you want to on fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us together on not Twitter at Facebook. Facebook.com. Yeah, I didn't know if you were going to finish that out, but you did. I'm, I'm yeah. very happy. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez for my first name, DA70. That is my Twitter handle. You can also see David's top 10 montage at fightinginthewarroom.com. You can just go there for everything. That's all, all of us, which you should know because you're listening to the outro. You could call us at 914 410 6450. I promise, somehow, some way, we will use some phone calls before the end of the year. Making that promise to you now. So Ooh. go go do something that makes that promise worthy of this show. Go now. <laughs> and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Twitter is also where you can find all of us at the handle F-I-T-W-R, where there's been uh, some tweeting and uh, I posted a picture of me and Dave, David and Patches at a party. So you can go find that too. <laughs> Exclusive. If, if you want to Photoshop Dave in there, you're welcome Aww. to do it. I wish I could. Um, that's also the place where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is a fun one. It is... In honor of Sigourney Weaver and Exodus, what famous star had the most inexplicable throwaway role in 2014? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.